Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Giovanni Prigigallo. He is the head of content and business development at Every Watch. Giovanni, welcome. Thank you so much, Ariel. So by the time this show airs, Every Watch will be live. We've chatted a little bit about um, the platform uh, prior to this. And, and I'll have everyone know that I, I love it when there's new watch websites that come out any single time there's a new business in the space. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm interested. I'm excited. I nerd out about business development in the space. And part of that is also the backgrounds of the various types of men and women who say, you know what I want to do? I want to start a, a business in the watch industry. Um, Giovanni, talk a little bit about your background and leading up to, hey, you know what I want to do? Start a business in the watch industry. <laughs> yes. So uh, first of all, uh, I grew up around watches. So both my grandparents uh, were into watches. Uh, so I inherited uh, a few of their watches early. Uh, and therefore, my interest for already vintage watches started very early because that's what I got, you know, watches from the 70s. Um, and, and uh, you know, watches have been my passion. Also, in Italy, everyone has their like good watch uh, or almost everyone. Uh, that they wear um, for a lifetime. That's a, that's a big thing here. Um, and and if you visited, you've probably spotted a lot of submariners, uh, big jobs, and so on. In the I, I have I have a I have a joke, and this is, I love Italy and I love Italian watch enthusiasts so much. But there's a joke here, and I, I tell me if this if, if this makes you laugh or not. And I, it was a kind of amusing to me until I went to Italy. I was like, wait a minute, this is true. Someone in the watch industry said something to me one time, and this is before, this was about at least 10 years ago. They're like, you know, Ariel, we say something about Italy. I'm like, oh yeah? They're like, this is where Rolex watches go to die. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the, the last owner of any Rolex is probably going to be in Italy. It's going to be someone who's going to buy pretty much any Rolex. They're going to wear the Rolex. They're going to wear it till it's dead. And, and, and that's it. That's the last owner it's going to have. They're going to wear it, you know, to the end of their days. And uh, again, it's, it's, it's kind of amusing because in a way it's kind of true, right? It's absolutely true. And and I'll tell you more. I'm actually wearing my uh, grandparent they just uh 1601-3 uh in steel and gold from the early 70s. And you know, he bought it. I have the papers with his own name, passed it to my dad, and my dad passed it on to me. Uh and we're already 50 years later, and I'm still wearing the watch and still in the family. And there's a lot of cases uh, such as this. And, and, you know, maybe you get many people that they buy their, their great watch in, in their 30s. And, and yeah, they, it will die with them. And then it will go to the children and so on. So, yes, absolutely true. It's not a stereotype <laughs> at all. <laughs> I just, I mean, look, it's funny when you, when you have these idiosyncrasies of particular watch-loving regions. You know, every place has its watch. I mean, I'll laugh about America for a minute, especially in middle America. Um, they will 
they will happily take designs that people in big cities, high culture, lots of art, uh, education, like, oh, that's horrible. But there's certain people in America that will happily wear ugly watches to the end of their days. So we every every place has an, has its own kind of idiosyncrasies for sure. And that's 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 why we love it. Okay, so you grew up uh, with family members that loved watches and imparted on you some of this passion and enthusiasm. Um, how did watches come back into your life in a professional way later? So, you know, I, I got, by the time I was 18 and I was starting uh, university and school, uh, you know, I had some money saved up and being very passionate about watches. Uh, and my dream watch at the time being the Royal Oak, I really wanted to, you know, uh, get the one good watch. But then I thought about it and, and rather than just buying the one good watch, I, I wanted to experience more watches because I, I really had a passion for it. So I decided to go out and buy um, a few watches. Uh, and so basically, you know, I had one that stayed in the collection, still in my collection today. Uh, and that was the first. Uh, it's actually an Explorer 2, 16750. Uh, and out of that, I started, you know, trading in and out of some watches, mainly because of I wanted to experience what different watches were like. Uh, and I really had a passion for it and it quickly became, you know, a small business and then it grew a little bit more and, and you start making connections with different dealers. I also, uh, traveled a lot. Uh, I studied abroad. So, uh, both in different parts of Europe and us. Uh, and so I got to meet different people and got a lot of connections through that internationally. Um, and so it became my, my side hustle through school. Uh, and also after, after school also while I was working, I'm actually a biomedical engineer and um, specialized in biotech. Um, but yeah, watches remained a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, a leading tech venture capital firm uh, is behind every watch. And when I met with the founder of the, of the fund, uh, you know, it was actually for biotech purposes, but we came together uh, to the realization that there was a big opportunity in watches and being that my passion. That's how every watch got started, basically. Uh, long story short. You mentioned something interesting about being venture-backed. And I know that anyone who finances a business uh, does so not from a passion for the topic of the business, because I think it's a sound business idea. And I know that there's been a lot of entrepreneurialism in the watch space lately. Of course, I have my own observation about it from my vantage point, but for, for people in the VC world, uh, you're a little bit different because of course you love watches, you understand it, but when you discuss the watch industry with them, especially from a potential, uh, you know, let's develop a business in its standpoint, what are some of the questions that they ask you, or what are some of the things that you feel like you have to explain to them about the watch industry and watch enthusiasts? It depends on who you're talking to, but I'd say that that's, it's a common theme around investment, uh, atmosphere, whether it's, it's an investment fund, hedge fund, uh, VC, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of these people are at least acquainted to watches and they might not define themselves as a watch collector, but everyone has one or two good watches that they wear more often than not being Rolex. I came to find out. Uh, and then many of them are actually collectors or small collectors who have an interest uh, in watches. And you get this, this theme around, you know, maybe cars, watches, wine, uh, and different collectibles uh, of this area. So in the in the investment space, in the venture space, I was surprised to find out that many people are actually acquainted. And when you talk to them about such an idea, such a business, they're not 
you know, they, they are acquainted. They actually know uh, what you're talking about and they understand the idea of, for example, buying every watch because they themselves struggle to find a watch or to get the good valuation for that watch and, and so on. Now, when they talk about you know, the potential of revenue, uh, do you just say, you know what, I like watches and I want to try it? Or there's this company over here and they've made a ton of cash or I theoretically think, think you can make this amount? Because to a degree, uh, this is a passion industry. People are lucky to make money if, they, if they're in it and, and they get to work around something they like. We know that um, even though the prices of watches are high at a lot of watch brands, it's not exactly a high margin industry. I'm just trying to understand some of the ways you get them excited about it or allow them to believe it's sort of a good investment. Are there other types of learnings or technology that can arise out of it? I just find it very fascinating because when I look at it from a business perspective, it's a hobby. And most people, you know, they spend money on their hobby. They don't make money on their hobby. You, being someone who were able to sort of buy and, and sell a little bit, uh, that's cool and that's awesome and you're not alone. But you are the exception of the norm, right? Most men and women that buy watches, they just buy. They don't sell a trade. That's true. So basically, the, the, the market is huge, right? Especially the pre-owned market. Yeah. And so there is a big opportunity in that sense. And if you look at other spaces such as that, that are more crowded. So to say, you said it good. So watches are a hobby because they're not a necessity, like for example, cars, you know, but of course we're talking about different cars. The collectibles are not really the, your everyday car, but you know, everyone is acquainted with cars. Everyone uses cars basically. Uh, and, and that's why you have more attention, I think, to that market rather than the watch market. Uh, but for example, if you look at cars, if you look at art, uh, which is a more developed market in my uh, in my opinion, you will see that there are data aggregators, there are platforms that are giving out strong analytics to value the artworks, to value the cars, um, and there is a, a stronger analysis towards the market. And I think with uh, you know COVID times and after COVID, the watch industry uh, received a lot of attention, uh, as we know, and I think. Uh, a lot of people got interested into watches. Uh, I think we got a lot of new people buying watches, maybe because they were trying to speculate. Some of them, uh, somebody probably burned their fingers. But I think a lot of people actually experienced watches and 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 developed a taste for it. You know, uh, so I think the the market and the attention to the market really grew. And also, you get you know a lot of important uh, athletes around the NBA, soccer. And if, uh, tennis, uh, golf, we all know the, the, the watch sports, uh, Formula One, and so on. And, and you know, many people are, are following those sports and those things. So there, I think there's, there's a lot of added eyeballs and interest to the watch market and therefore potentially setting up for enormous growth over the next few years, right? Uh, and the fact that watches were really hard to purchase new, some of the, you know, the hype watches we can call them or the very desirable watches, uh, I think also turned a lot of people towards uh, the pre-owned market. And also now we're seeing that a lot of people are getting tired with this kind of behavior from that it's really hard to get to get new watches and they're turning to vintage. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest there. And when you show the market possibilities and the market growth to an investor, um, and you show them that all the other collectible industries have data aggregators, they have the strong data analytics platforms, 
uh, and you can do a lot with data. Once you show them that opportunity, then uh, in their mind, there's a click and they understand why uh, it's important to develop this and why there is a strong opportunity. Speaking a little bit on a more macro basis, is there a, possibly a what I call it a collectibles bubble? Because collectibles are a very interesting thing, especially in America and parts of the Western world where people have disposable income and, and spend a lot of it on, on hobbies which involve you know, buying certain things. And what I found that's happened more recently, especially you know, with internet commerce, is that it hasn't just become about the hobbies, it's become about the desirability and, rare, and the rarity of certain items. And there are people who love the hobby and then there's people who may not be so interested in the hobby as they are being interested in owning rare things that other people want to buy. And I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, how do you define this market where hobbies are important, but there's sort of this other element on there, which is, I don't know, it's not really monetization of the hobby. It's, it's, it's somehow leveraging desirability of, of, of rare objects. It, I, again, it's something I'm still trying to wrap my mind around because I'm trying to understand it. But how do you think about this topic? Uh, so yes, I, I think about the collectibles bubble. I think you will get a lot of attention towards the blue chip items. Again, let's look at comparable industries such as the uh, car industry, the art market. You will always get a lot of attention towards a Picasso, towards a Ferrari F40, and and I think same thing with the with the watches. You will always have that category of watches that will return their value because they are historically important, because they are really rare, because they are, there is a lot of uh, brand behind it, and there's a lot of uh, craftsmanship behind it that people widely appreciate. Of course, I also think that some watches have been portrayed as collectible, and they're not really collectible. Um, and for sure, uh, one way or another, you know, people had more time with COVID uh, and had more disposable income. Uh, they weren't traveling, so I think a lot of that got put towards uh, collectibles and and. Many of that from that crowd will will start losing interest in time, uh, but I think you know it was good for the space because many people well, once they get interests, they actually develop a passion, be it for watches, be it for vintage cars, be it for uh, collectibles of any kind. Uh, so I think that the space gained a lot uh, with this period. Of course, there's been a deflationary period in, in the value of a lot of uh, these things. Uh, and there will be less attention, but I think uh, we'll retain quite some bit. Is there a way of shifting that behavior? And again, maybe I'm just thinking in a little bit of a, a fantasy land here, but you said there's these blue chip items and in the watch space, we definitely have them. But the funny thing is that it, this hyper focus on this relatively narrow set of watches and brands always seems to necessitate, uh, I guess, a neglect of other amazing things. So it looks like everyone's in it for great watches, but they're not. They're sort of in it for popular watches. And I wonder if there's a solution to that, because I think you'll agree that what ends up happening a lot is during these rushes for uh, you know, the hot watch, there's a lot of amazing watches left on the side. And yes, that, that's great for the ultra enthusiast that knows about them and can um, you know, uh, use those, those values and those lower costs to their advantage. But isn't it better for everyone if it just levels out? Meaning there's no ultra popular ones. It's just people like good watches. Again, maybe I'm being a little devil's advocate here, but I think it's an interesting behavior that the market tends to, to hyper-focus on a couple of items when in reality, the market's much bigger than that. Absolutely. Uh, and there are a lot of great watches in the market. Again, I think 
it's a developing market. And I think it has been, as you said, very focused towards a few items. But I think it's it's broadening with time. People are getting, I'm not sure if bored or or what is the right term for it, but uh, they're shifting the focus uh, towards other other type of watches. Um, and I think people are also studying what makes a watch great. Uh, of course, everyone will have their opinion. Who, there are the people that love complication, people that love design, people that love a mix of both, people that appreciate the craftsmanship behind it, uh, and not only buy it as a status symbol. Uh, but I think, again, if we bring the right attention, if we bring the right awareness to the market, and we bring out and, and shine the spotlight to the great opportunities that there are in, in the market and show people, you know, with every watch, one of the things I really want to show people is that there are a lot of great watches that let's say if you have a budget of $10,000, uh, you could go for the obvious the Rolex Submariner, classic, timeless, but you could also go for uh, very, very cool, very well done, finished, uh, high-end watches, maybe in the vintage space, maybe uh, that, you know, from lesser known brands. And I think some people are starting to appreciate that. I think it, I think you see it with the development of the independent watch industry that people are shifting towards what's really uh, worth the price tag in the sense that there is a lot of craftsmanship behind it. There is a lot of engineering, uh, and people are starting to appreciate that. I'm not sure uh, it will be an instant shift. I think that we will always have, you know, I think uh, in the watch world, for example, the Daytona will always be a collectible, same as the Nautilus and the Royal Oak. But let's see to what to what extent and and how people will actually uh, be able to look at other opportunities as well. I know that you're a data person and analysis is a big part of what you do. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on what exactly is the formula or in other words, why do certain watches get that hype watch status? I've always seen it as being kind of random. I mean, there is obviously some commonalities, but it's hard to predict what it is. There's plenty of watches that just as easily could be cult watches and ones that don't. What is responsible or what are some of the factors and, and features that every one of these watches seems to have in common? It's a good question for sure. I think there are a lot of intangibles that go into that. Like what? For example, I think it's becoming more common that people pay more attention to watches that are worn by celebrities. Or if, let's say, artists start mentioning certain watches or certain things into songs uh, and they start wearing those watches, I think uh, those big artists, uh, say like Drake, say like Jay-Z, bring a lot of attention to, and the movie stars, of course. And then you get these artists is to, to do interviews about their collections and uh, people start making videos about uh, what they're wearing. I think it's a cycle that brings a lot of attention to certain uh, watches and certain brands. And I also believe that the super collectors, if we can consider them such as such, um, have a lot of influence in a top-down way uh, towards the, the mass. Uh, and I believe that's also why I think the brand caught up very well onto this. And I think that's why they're really trying to get the best advocates for their brands. And I guess also that's why Rolex is, is so good. You know, they'll always get the best sportsmen, the best sponsorships and, and bring a lot of attention to their watches that way. What do you think about it? 
You know, it was actually funny. I was actually just about to ask a follow-up question, which is what I think. And, and here's what I think, which it kind of amazes me. I completely agree with you that when there's a respected celebrity or interesting type of, we'll just call it influencer out there, which could be a lot of things, a politician, a scientist, whatever, and they're interested in a hobby, it's very easy to be curious. Oh, they're into that thing? I wonder why. I guess where I get confused is, okay, people are noticing the watches, but rather than saying, oh, watches are a thing... I guess that person I respect is into it, I should be as well. Rather than doing that behavior, they're so much more linear about it. They're like, oh, they like that specific thing, I'll like that specific thing too. Not I'll share their hobby, not I'll share their passion, but I'm just gonna copy them. And that's where I get a little bit confused because that's not where I go to default, but so many people's default is must copy it. Not understand why they do it or also be into that so I could chat with them about it. It's just copy exactly what they did without thinking much more about it. And that's kind of weird to me also weird to me and i also don't function that way but again i think if you copy someone and, and get that watch and you haven't had watches before and you start wearing a nice watch daily and you start getting compliments for it and and you know you start feeling great about it then it might actually drive passion afterwards uh and i think that's the case uh more often than not uh, i mean you- and this is what we're talking about as silly as it is this is the most important topic because the reason people buy the watches, the ones that wear them, is for these little, as you say, intangible compliments, the way someone comments about it, the, the way someone looks. Maybe someone treats you a little bit differently. If you went your entire life and you wore expensive watches and it didn't affect your day, either how it made you feel or how it made other people treat you, you wouldn't do it for very long. And I'm not saying it's always about others. Sometimes it's just about how it makes you feel. But Oftentimes, the individual who is personally delighted by their own watch is not the follower, is not the person that copies, is the one that made a lot of decisions around that watch, knows specifically why he or she is wearing it. It means something to them versus the person that uh, copies. They really want more of that external validation. And I really believe that without that validation happening once in a while – uh, this would be a lot more difficult of a hobby to uh, evangelize the people, right? Uh, that's true. That's true. And and I also think that with the passion comes like-minded friends. So you start making, uh, you know, friendships with other watch collectors uh, and you start talking to other watch collectors and maybe you start talking to many dealers because you're trying to buy and, and understand what's the best opportunity. So I think it's a, it's a loop, you know, once you, you start getting into the space and you start talking to more, more watch people, then the comments and the compliments and the discussions about watches increase, uh, and you get sucked in. Right. I, I yeah, think that's, it, a, that's it, also it, a big part of it. <laughs> I, I want to ask a little bit more about these people that, see watches more as an investment. And I, again, I don't interact with them that much because I'm just they're not that interesting to me. But I wonder, you're talking about a minute repeater, does it lose value if you wear it? Because there's certain people that refuse to wear the watches that keep it the packaging. I, I understand they want to keep it new. But uh, do these watches, they lose too much value if they're worn? Meaning in order to keep it an asset, quote unquote, can you not enjoy it like a watch? I think we need to make three distinctions, and that's actually data validated, uh, okay. I can tell you. So at every watch, we saw a very specific behavior, uh, which is intuitive at the end of the day, if you see it, but it's actually we validated it with data. So one, if you keep it new, you have to wait 20, 30 years 
Because if it's a current watch production and you keep it new, you know, tomorrow somebody might get another one and they just got it, you know, yesterday, they got it tomorrow, let's say in a few days, they got it yesterday and they also kept it new. You kept it new for a year. Does it make a difference? No, it's still the same watch, same edition and same condition, right? So to really be a differentiator, uh, you know, buy a, a Rolex today with the stickers and everything else and keep it in a safe for 30 plus years. And then you'll really have a, a, a rare bird in 30 years from now. Uh, and that's why we see it with the, with the safe queens of, of the past, uh, that really, uh, command the premium because they're just, there is none, right? Like right. People, especially in the past, used to really, really wear their watches. Now you can, you could argue that if too many people do it today and in 30 years, we'll have so many safe queens and so many unworn watches that it will lose their edge in the market as well. Then the second one is you wear it and it, it in, in a good way and it doesn't go, it, it's not like the condition, it's not affected by major changes and it's not, it doesn't undergo major restoration. That I think affects, uh, the value at one point. So if you, if you wear it in a good way, good healthy way and you just do the service occasionally, um, I think that watch will not really uh, lose a lot of value, and and there's going to be of course different levels to to the condition of the watch, but it's a broad band where they actually keep that value. And then of course, if you have major flaws and and uh, and the watch was subject to major uh, damage or a very very bad polish where you have to recase the watch and and such things or redial, that's when the the value really really gets affected. So these are the three uh, spheres that, so, that we see from data. I guess that means unless you have a very long-term plan, it's kind of a waste if you don't wear the watch today. I, I really believe so. And while in the craziness and the frenzy of the you know COVID period, dealers were actually paying a premium for a stickered watch or for an unworn watch or sealed, double sealed, triple sealed for Patek. I think that trend is is really toning down right now, and dealers are not paying a premium for those watches anymore. Um, and you will see people, you know, also the collectors. You will see less and less keeping those watches in in the safe like that because at one point, okay, I see it has no extra value, so why would I keep it in the safe? I would rather wear it at this point if it retains X value rather than keeping it in the safe. So. That reinforces my point that in 30 years, whoever has that such of a long-term mindset uh, will win eventually and will get a, a great valuation for that watch. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I love to think about the psychology of it because, you know, there's a lot of individuals today who are never going to sell the watch as though it's an asset. But for whatever reason, like, have thought themselves weekend investors or casual investors or whatever. And, they, and, I've, and I've heard this statement before, and I think it's kind of weird to say, but it's out there. And they, they have their Rolex, and they like to say to people, do you know what this is worth now? And the operative logic is that they're very impressed with themselves that this watch is worth more than retail. But they are wearing it. And as long as they're wearing it, I guess I'm happy because that means they're participating in the hobby. I just don't want people to have reasons not to wear it. So the things you're saying are, are interesting to me. I didn't know, uh, you know, some of that with the data, and that there aren't necessarily premiums that go for those, um, you know, totally, <laughs> totally unpackaged things. 
with that said, I, I think that it's it's really important that people focus on wearing the watch because all these other things are sometimes theoretical value. You know, we talk about the emotional value. Um, and honestly, people who say, you know, this watch is worth a lot more than retail, they don't realize that's basically the same thing as saying, you know, my grandfather wore this and I really liked it. Like, it's just <laughs> this idea of why it has value to you. It means something to you. And, and, but it's, it doesn't mean you're going to sell it, right? It just, in your mind, adds value. So if it gets you to wear it, great. I just lament the fact that there's people out there with, you know, watches in safes that, you know, aren't wearing it. And that's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a strange status quo. It's even, it's even weirder than wine because nobody wears their wine, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I will tell you something more. Uh, you have a lot of people that, um, I guess now are starting to realize, but in the past two years, we're buying a lot of watches new, thinking that they would make a premium on it. Well, while that is not really such the case. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. As we know, you know, not all the watches demand a premium, and not all the prices that you see in the internet are actually, you know, most of the time are asking price. So we at every watch, first of all, all the statistics that you will see on the website uh, that we will provide in the re data reports and so on. They're all from auctions. And that's another another one of our points is to kind of democratize uh, auctions in a way that we follow, we track the data of more than 250 auction houses worldwide. And they sell anything from $50 to uh, tens of millions. So first of all, we want to bring some awareness to the people that, you know, don't have a huge budget that they, they can actually do like have great deals from auction houses uh, across the world. And that's also to, to validate the point that we're not only um, taking the data of uh, super collectibles at the high end, but we have the whole spectrum from the auctions and that's actually, you have a sold price and you can analyze how many times a watch has been unsold. So you can kind of understand the liquidity of the watch and what's the watch worth? And that we bring to the table anytime somebody looks at the watch on our website, we'll see this kind of statistics and we'll get a better idea of if the, is the, this watch liquid, can I sell it for how much? Uh, and so on. And the second one is we use the marketplace data. So the asking price, quote unquote, uh, we study the lifetime of the listing uh, to understand the volume as well and the liquidity. So we combine these two major data points to actually get a comprehensive analysis of is this watch liquid? What's this watch worth? And what are the major point differentiators that actually bring up the value or bring down the value of desirability of the watch, say being a, a specific uh, case material, a specific dial configuration, whether it is box and papers, whether it is that condition and so on and so forth. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. 
Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. So let's talk a little bit more just in general macro about every watch. This is a good segue to talk about it. Um, this is a... I'll call it, it's it's an educational website. The idea is to help give you information. That information, as you said, comes from a variety of auction houses. Um, and then you try to use your intelligent curation of that data to give metrics to people that matter, such as the liquidity. Um, so this is, in essence, a, a research tool. Who are the types of people that you built this for? Are these for dealers? Are these for casual collectors? Um, talk a little bit about the intended user of every watch. Yeah, so every watch is for everyone that wants to buy a watch that's into watches. Really, we want to create something useful for everyone at different levels, of course. There's going to be people that are super enthusiasts, super collectors that will use the whole spectrum of tools. And there will be, you know, beginners that will use some tools that we built for just beginners. There will be the occasional buyer that will use our service in a certain way. And now we'll specifically talk about uh, what we see that being. But basically, uh, what we do in general is we are a data aggregator. As again, we aggregate data from more than 250 auction houses currently, and that number is always growing. And we have plans to get to a uh, thousand in a short way, in a short time. Uh, and we aggregate more than a hundred um, marketplaces and online dealers from all over the world. And our results database in the auction side goes back to 1989. And we have more than 300,000 lots and data points of sold watches uh, that we use to build our statistics. So again, our goal is to empower people to make the most informed decision that they can when buying watches. That doesn't mean uh, we see watches as an investment that you should use every watch to take advantage of that. Of course, if you see it that way, you can. But what we mean by it is, let's say you want to, you know which watch you're going to buy and you want to look for the best deal. So we aggregate more than 100 marketplaces and online dealers plus all the auctions. So you can browse for that watch through upcoming auctions, through all the dealers across the world virtually. You know, we'll get to that, but we're already at a good stage. And you can compare the watches so you can see which one has the best condition, which one is in the country that you're interested in. And so to eventually get to a decision of which one to buy. So if you love Chrono24, if you love Watchbox, if you love Adinki, any one of these providers, we love them. We see that we see them as partners and we'd like to refer to them, refer you as a user to them uh, in order to buy your watch. But we will give you the tools to actually research and find out, find the best opportunity for you. Uh, just like, you know, today you don't go to their airlines website to find your flight. You know, you maybe go to Skyscanner, you maybe go to Expedia to find the best opportunity for your flight, for your connections, for these kind of things. You see the same thing in the hotel business. You know, you go to booking.com, you go to Expedia again, uh, to hotels.com, you just don't go to the Marriott website or the Hilton website. Um, so that's the same value, added value that we want to provide. 
to give a tool that overviews 360 degrees the market and empowers people to make a more informed decision when buying watches and also bridge the gap between options and marketplace. I think people should really get acquainted with both and understand case by case when they're buying a watch, is it convenient for me to buy this at auction or from a dealer in the marketplace? And the asking price in the marketplace, are they real? Are they the same as compared to what these watches are actually selling for at auctions? Or is it actually better for me to turn and go to the auctions uh, and, and look for them? And then the other big service that we will bring to the table is you can actually set alerts in our platform. You can say, I'm looking for this watch. I like this watch. And then anytime there is a new listing, there is a new watch upcoming for sale at auction that you like this of this kind that you selected, or there is a new result. So you want to see how much they're selling for. We will bring this directly to your inbox through notifications. Uh, that you can completely customize. You can save your search uh, by keyword, by brand, by model, by any of the categories that you can imagine. I have a question related to the auction houses. You mentioned that you aggregate uh, the data of completed auctions, uh, but also that you had information of upcoming or, or we'll call them you know, live auctions and things like that. In each auction house, as I understand, is a slightly different way of working with them. There's different types of fees and premiums and stuff like that. Is that reflected on every watch or do you have to do more data to figure out ultimately what it'll cost you? No, absolutely. So, of course, in upcoming auctions, we just show the, the estimates, so without fees. But any results that you see on our website is including including all fees. So, Does it, Do you break it down? Because I think that... Um, from my perspective, while I like the work that a lot of auction houses do, not all, I think that if they're guilty of anything, it's um, it's hiding prices. And this is something that the luxury industry in general has been guilty of for many, many years, being very uh, uh, self-conscious about prices. But the transparency of the internet has made that taboo necessarily go away. So what I'm hoping is more transparency in this, because I think that there's too many situations where someone gets excited about something, and then in the small text and in the small details, there's another 12% or 20% fee, which all of a sudden makes what they thought was a good deal not a good deal, and now they're stuck. And if that happens too many times, you don't shop that much more. And I don't like that. So I'm wondering what you think about those practices of uh, the non-transparency of fees and if there's a way around that. Absolutely. So what we're willing to bring to the table is some sort of alarm calculator and show actually what the, what the fees will be, even applied to the, to the estimates, and then give you some kind of calculator that you can use uh, when uh, thinking of, of bidding on the watch that you'll be able to use to just know exactly what you're going to pay for for the watch. What else can you offer that makes the experience of browsing auctions better? Because I think that, you know, the auction houses, sometimes they fall into one of two categories. One is we got so many watches, we don't know what to do with it. We can't really take a lot of good pictures. We can't have great explanations. We just got a ton of watches. We got to sell them. And it's kind of cool, but you don't really know what the prices are going to be. It's kind of confusing. Then you have the others, which are like, we're going to curate everything. We're going to do a lot of storytelling, a lot of fancy photography. And you know you're going to pay a lot. These are, these are what I call the entertainment auctions, right? There's not a lot in the middle. <laughs> and you have to sort of know a little bit what you're dealing with sometimes 
um, and it can be difficult. So I'm wondering what types of tools you can offer to make it a little bit less scary, a little bit less unpredictable, because there's so much inventory out there that's just waiting to be purchased, right? Yeah. So what we do at every watch is we take everything and then we standardize it the every watch way. So before you go to the scary and hard to understand maybe website of, of the source, mm-hmm. you will see it in a very clear structure, very clear way portrayed on every watch. Of course, if they just take two pictures of the watches that are not really good, we can't do much at every watch. We just, you know, we're portraying the pictures that the source is, is, is showing. And all we can do is put you in touch uh, with the auction house uh, in this case, if you want more pictures. Uh, so that's a service that we're willing to, to offer in the future to, to partner with all these auction houses that are our partners, uh, and, uh, offer a funnel for every watch users to directly communicate with them through us. Uh, so whether it being a condition report, you know, standardized in English or, uh, so we'll offer some kind of concierge that's, that's a little bit on the future, but it's in the plans. And something else is again, everything will be standardized to the is standardized to the every watch uh, format, which is very clear. Everything is portrayed. We show the description, so we do the work for the user. We break it down into sections. So description, you will have the description text of the watch, uh, if there's any. Then you have all the categories, so the case material, the dial color, the case size, all the data about the watch. And then on top of that, next to it, you will see uh, all the analytics. So if the watch has been sold before. How much? What is the range of the past 12 months in the marketplace? What is the range in the auctions? Uh, and what is the median price? We're using median here because, you know, let's take a, a Daytona for an, for an example, the, the Zenit Daytona, the 16520. You have the porcelain dials that sell for uh, over 100,000. And then you, you get the regular ones that sell for 25,000, 30,000. So if you use a median, we'll catch exactly what's in the middle and we'll get a realistic value. And then if you have, of course, the porcelain dial, you can go and check the specific lot that sold of the porcelain dial for how much. But this way, we want to give a tool for everyone, for the mass, for the most people, to actually get an accurate valuation, an accurate indication of what their watch uh, might be worth. And we show the range as well, just to show, okay, there are watches that sell for 120,000 and they start from 20,000. So there is a difference. People can understand that they, they can click on the two ranges and they can see what are the lots that are contained in that range. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what we're bringing to the table. That's what we offer a very standardized way for the people to look at, uh, these things before moving on to the options. And we also plan to give the possibility to register easily and, and make a connection to the registration page for the auction directly through us. You have relationships with the auction houses in order to get their data, right? This is not just data which is available to anyone. Yes. So uh, we partner with most of them. Uh, and then the rest is, you know, it's publicly available data. So it's not easy to take, but uh, it's available. And at the end of the day, uh, we saw it before with other businesses that we have in the in the fund, that auction houses are more than happy to for you to show this kind of data because anyways, you're bringing users to them. So they have no harm, no foul in, in you portraying their data, uh, especially in a very organized way that they might not always do themselves. Have you found that there's any type of data or information that auction houses don't want to sell? And I wondered about this myself because they have those star lots that they're very excited about, went for this big amount of money, and it's 
it definitely looks good for them. But, you know, most of the time, at least at most of the auction houses, watches don't necessarily sell for amazing amounts or might not sell at all. And I'm just wondering if you've run into any issues where they're happy to provide some information, but there's other information that, for whatever reason, they don't want to share, even though it's, you know, necessary to understand the market. As of now, uh, not really, uh, or at least not explicitly. We see sometimes... <laughs> Yeah, we see sometimes that, you know, some lots that get unsold uh, get deleted uh, after a while that the auction is finished rather than portraying that the watch is unsold. Uh, that does not apply to all auction houses, of course. And there's uh, a few examples here and there, also depending on which specific auction is not always, you know, as broad as the all auction houses doing this practice. But yeah, so we see these kind of things, but, uh, you know, we're very good with tech and uh, we're quick enough to, to capture that. Um, and we love to show again, uh, what's the percentage of unsold lots. Uh, and that will not be done, uh, specifically for an auction house, but it will be done, you know, as broad as for that watch for the specific reference number. Uh, that will give you an idea exactly again about how they perform, if they're liquid. Uh, if there is a high chance that the watch won't sell, uh, and so on. And I think it's interesting. Uh, nobody has ever done it before, and we provide a very unique service in this sense that I believe will bring clarity, and I hope uh, will bring a lot of clarity to the watch market and bring people to the realization that how it works and who are the winners and who are the losers in terms of you know investments. Uh, and what are the watches that actually perform great compared to none? And you will be shocked to see that are, there are a lot of contrasting data points uh, in that sense. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. What is the business model of every watch? In other words, how, how exactly are you, are you set up to make money? Yeah. So first of all, the first part of it is, uh, is subscriptions. So we will have a freemium model. So you register, uh, and for free, you will have a, a certain part of the uh, services that we provide. So you will be able to see all the watches from the marketplace and the upcoming auctions, but you will have all of the results and the most interesting part of the analytics that will be blocked because that's our big expertise. That's our unique service provider, like service that we provide. And we believe there's a lot of value in that. Uh, and therefore, you know, that's behind the paywall, that's behind the subscription. So fee. just out of curiosity, what is that particular metric, that valuable one that you have to pay for? What's it going to be? Is that the um, you know, the liquidity uh, index? I'm just curious what it is. Yeah, basically all the analytics that will go from the range of the watch, uh, the median value, uh, also charts to show where it sold for how much okay. uh, and how much it went unsold, whether it sold. Uh, how many times and how much percentage sold above estimate, within estimate, below estimate. And then, you know, also more broader analytics. So what we're doing is we take the auction seasons, which we consider from, from October till January and from April till August, uh, sorry, till uh -huh. July. Those two, uh, we consider in, of course, consider them as quarters. So auction season and we do analysis of each auction season. We did it for the past five years. So that's something you will find uh, even as a downloadable uh, report in our analytics section. And as well, we do it yearly. So you will get analysis yearly. And that analysis will be who is the best auction house, which one is the best performer, what is the best performing brand, 
we made a selection of top 20 models. How are they performing compared to the last year, compared to the last quarter, depending on which, which report you're looking at, uh, which is the most prevalent case material, which is the most prevalent dial color that's performing best. So you will also, also see the shifts in trends from one year to the other. So I would say also uh, some of this data is very interesting to the brands themselves to, to kind of understand the market in a better way, even though it's pre-owned market, of course, but I think it's very indicative of uh, what's to come in the new market. Also the size. Uh, so I think we bring a lot of very interesting analytics and very unique. Again, it's very hard. Now, I, I haven't seen another data provider that provides such analytics. You're a data person, and I know that what you're going to want to do in the future, especially after you get over the launch period, is you're going to want more data and more data. And once you get more data, you can do cool stuff with it. What are some of your plans to get more data? Of course, you can probably generate a little bit of your own, but you're going to want to go out there and get more data. And I'd love to know where you plan on getting it. We have a long roadmap already for both auction houses and both marketplace and dealers. But I'd say a very big aspiration of ours is to incorporate one way or another all the, and we're debating on how to do it, but uh, all the, let's call them ghost dealers mm -hmm. and to actually eradicate the practice of uh, price and request in the industry. Uh, yeah, I hate that. You know, I tell brands, we won't publish that. I, I'm sorry, I have to cut you off here. Oftentimes, you know, we ask a brand and they say price on request. And I, and I say to them, we just requested it. And you know what we say now to the brands that won't give a price? Brand refuses to publish price. Yeah. So just just get, just saying here, I, and the media side, I hate that. On the sales side, it's just as bad in a different way. Proceed. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, we like our goal is to bring a lot of clarity to the markets, and those are uh, very useful data points, and often are the highly collectible uh, watches that uh, do not like, of which the prices are not publicly available. Uh, and and what we see is that's not a practice that everyone is adopting anymore. And there's a lot of people that uh, are actually sharing all the prices, which is great. Uh, you know, I could name a few dealers here and there, but uh, Watchbox is a great example. They, they publish the price of all of their watches, which I think is great. You know, it brings a lot of clarity to the market. And but it people should be that see. way. I mean, look, I have, I have to comment here because I think the economics are interesting. Every time, if you're, in the, if you're in the market of selling things, you have goods to sell, you know by the time you acquire that good what you need to sell it for to make a margin you'd be happy with, right? You buy something for $100, you know that with your costs and blah, blah, blah to make a profit, you need to sell it for $300. This is just an example, okay? That's a practice that we all, we all understand. It's legitimate. Uh, as a capitalist, we support it. We're happy if someone makes a little bit of a profit. That's okay. That's cool. This other practice of price on request literally is, so who's asking to buy? I wonder what I can get away with. Now you're not taking the margin that you need, but, you, but greed comes in. And you're trying to identify what can I get away with, which is no longer, I think, a business practice or any type of uh, transparency that anybody wants to support. So I think that's why we don't like this practice, because it incorporates too much greed into the equation. And again, the moment any merchant purchases a good, they know what the inventory cost is and they know what they need to sell it for to make money. So this idea of I, I, I can only determine the price when you ask, total BS. <laughs> well, 
I think uh, sometimes it's, it's reasonable to not share it. From what we see from data, data perspective, right? I'm, uh, okay. I'm not sharing my, my, my personal opinion here. What we see is sometimes, which I, this, this one I perfectly understand. Uber Rare Watch. Never I don't even have market. a watch. I need to get it. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's, <laughs> that we don't condone. Uh, <laughs> and actually, we take measures not to incorporate that. I'll, I'll, talk, yeah, about yeah. It. I'll talk about it in a minute. But what, like Uber Rare Watch, never been into the market. And actually, you know, people will pay a premium to buy that watch that's not publicly known, right? We all know this. So that's understandable. That's part of the collectibles. And but at that point you should shouldn't even publish that watch with the pictures and so on online, right? So you're just gonna send it to the right people, to the right collectors that are actually interested, and find a buyer for it. Uh, and that's one. So I also don't understand why we would, you would post a picture of that watch. You shouldn't if that's your intention. Uh, the second is you're publishing the watch and you're saying price on request because the watch is super rare and you have no way to measure what's the you don't know you don't know what's the price right um, but you do you do because you know what you acquired it for you that's do true. that that answer is bs it's greed and again i'm not arguing with you i'm just arguing the point out there with like well i don't know what i can get away with no what you there's there's let's say you bought it for whatever 30%, 40% margin. Okay, 6,000% margin? You're screwing somebody over. You're you're insulting the buyer. Don't make a market where buyers are insulted all the time because you know what? Then when they become a seller, they want to insult someone else. Let's let's have some dignity here where everyone is allowed to make money. You just can't make that much money. It's not fair. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really true. We hope that every watch will bring clarity to this. So if you have that's access to That's what I want. I, I, I want it to be when somebody makes that offer, some crazy offer on some website where like, this watch is 150000 Someone within a couple of clicks can be like, what a prick. <laughs> because we see that all the time, this type of aspirational pricing. That's what I call it. It's fishing. It's nothing more than fishing to see what idiot will bite. That's all it is. True. Uh, the mechanics that we want to install here is both the dealer and the collector will be able to use every watch and look at the results, the historical results going back 30, 40 years. That's what we bring to the table. Look for that specific watch and see how it's sold and where and when over time. And they might be, you know, they might even be able to see what the dealer paid for the watch because oftentimes, you know, dealers buy these rare watches at auction uh, and they do great deals at auction. So, you know, the, the collector will kind of have a point, you know, they, they can see if that, that's the same watch and they will know what dealer uh, paid for it in that case. I think this is a rare case, by the way. Yeah? But I think it will empower collectors and dealers at the same time to actually understand what this watch is worth. So for a dealer, knowing what to pay to make a margin. And I think they will have no problem in sharing uh, the price at that point uh, without saying you know price and request and so on. And I think it brings a lot of clarity to the market. And it's it, beneficial for everyone at that point because we have more data. You know, every, I think clarity is, is number one. Yeah, no, and, and these tools are how to slowly erode away some of these practices that we agree, you know, are, are, aren't great. I, we got time for sort of one more uh, question, and that has to do with your opinions about what I call market fragmentation and, and what you think the future holds. Right now, 
I think that if you are someone who's interested in acquiring a watch, you are faced with an awful lot of options. Maybe two options, according to some people, uh, between real world and online, new and used, authorized, gray market, and everything in between. There is so many ways of buying your next watch. Um, I, I think everyone agree that there has to be some type of consolidation at some point in the future. Where do you see the fragmentation for watch buying options going in the next five to 10 years, especially as someone who has been involved in the industry for most of your life? Great question. Not sure I have a, a, a definitive answer, uh, okay. but my opinion is that there is always the right fit for everyone. I think right now it's really hard to research what you should buy and you get a lot of, you know, I, I've sold watches many times. You as a dealer will know what the customer wants without him telling you. Like he, he has the budget, kind of like this, kind of like that. And, and your ability as a dealer is to tell him, look, these are your options. I suggest this because it's a great watch. It's within your budget and so on. But there is, you're talking to one person, you know, the taste of the dealer also comes into the suggestion, right? With a, but you don't have a research tool that makes you research exactly what's within your budget that's really cool, that has the same feature uh, maybe that you're looking for uh, and so on. And, and you don't really have discovery tools, let's say. Uh, yeah, the, the feed on Chrono24 works great. So after you search for a few things, uh, it starts to pick up and, and suggest you similar things. Uh, but what we bring to the table is actually, you know, analyze what are your light watches and suggest you something very similar based on the same price point and the same features. So at that point, you will have a clear view uh, on every watch of what are your options. Maybe you want to consider buying new and you will go to the to the new market and see, okay, I have $10,000, what can I buy? And then you can you know use a tool such as every watch and see what's available for $10,000 in the pre-owned market and so on. So not really sure how this will go. I think it really depends on the person, on the individual, what do they prefer? Uh, there's a lot of people that don't trust the used market and they would only buy new and they would rather buy maybe not the watch that we really want because it's impossible for them to buy, but to buy something else, but also new to have the certainty that they're buying something fully original, perfect with their name on it and no problem. And then you have, you know, the most, the more adventurous people that want to kind of uh, experience the used market and try to get great deals. I think really depends on the personality at the end. So I'm not sure where it will go. I just hope that every watch will be able to uh, bring some clarity to the market. That's that's our show. And I encourage everyone to check out everywatch.com. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Giovanni Prigigallo. Giovanni, thank you so much. And is there any other uh, places on the internet you want people to learn about you or EveryWatch? Thank you so much, Ariel. Uh, my Instagram is Prigi35, so P-R-I-G-I-3-5. Uh, and we have also uh, an Instagram account as EveryWatch. Uh, we have a Facebook account. We have all social media, basically. So I encourage you to follow us there. We will be publishing a lot of interesting analytics also through social media, especially Instagram. And yeah, I hope everyone will enjoy everywatch.com and I hope it will be the tool for you. Thank you so much. Giovanni, thank you so much. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.